You are listening to an audio message from The Well, a church in Hastings, Nebraska that seeks to be relevant, relational, and real. For more information, visit www.thewellhastings.com. Like Ty said, my name is Larry Molman, and I'm a grateful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I struggle, though, and I struggle a lot. Uh, One thing I do not struggle with is faith in Jesus Christ. I am definitely saved and born again. I am definitely a child of God. I am definitely an adopted child of the Most High. And I am so blessed. Joe told me about your stringent um, dress code that you guys go by. So I had to get my tie out and to wear all that stuff and get myself dolled up just so I would fit in. (laughs) Uh, That's really not what I'm about. I'm not about fitting into the world. I'm not about complying to what's going on around me. I never have been able to. I've never been the kind of guy that can do that. Oh, shut those lights back off. There we go. We don't scare anybody. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you guys should thank them too for shutting the lights back off. Um, I really, I really have been, I felt like a loner most of my life. I've realized just recently, even though I've been walking with Christ for a while, but that loneliness feeling that I carry around isn't loneliness at all. I'm homesick. This isn't my home. I don't belong here. I have a home in heaven with my Father that's more beautiful than anything that I can even imagine, anything that I could ever see or witness here. That's what's promised to me. Okay? The thing about living here now for me is I have to be transparent. If I want to serve God the way God wants me to serve Him, I've got to get the wreckage and the stuff from the world out of the way. Ty talked about Betty Boop. I do have a little bit of Betty Boop stuff. I stopped wearing Betty Boop nightgowns and t-shirts not too long ago, but I still have 40 or 50 pounds worth of those. If anybody wants them, come on over. Uh, You can have as many as you like. Uh, (laughs) I'm serious. This is a heart attack. Um... (laughs) But as I am working on being transparent, one of the things that I have to do is kind of strip away some of this stuff, this, the tie and the too many buttons and the long sleeve shirts and the got to be this and I have to do that. And church is supposed to look this way. And if I'm going to fit in, I got to look that way too. And you know... I don't know when the last time you guys saw somebody come up to talk to you that started stripping in front of you. Is this a common thing here, Danny? Or is it? Okay, I wasn't quite sure because nobody was shocked. (laughs) This is more who I am. I'm a carpenter. I've been a carpenter my whole life. I grew up in a construction family and had a hammer in my hand before I can remember. With that, I'm going to try and just share what the things that have gone through my life that have created the person that I am, the things that the world has created me to be. 
Not the things that God created me to be, but what the world has created me to be. First off, everybody's got one of those tickets, right? If you've got one of those, have something to write on. If there's something that I say that sparks a memory in you, or if there's something in you that you know you shouldn't be carrying around, if there's something in you that you know isn't God-honoring or is holding you back from serving the Lord the way you want to serve the Lord. Because if you want to serve the Lord, He really has put that in you and He wants you to do that. So if there's anything that's holding you back from doing that, write it down. I'm going to give you a chance later on to do something important with those. But right now, I want you to remember back as far as you can. When I do that, I can remember the day and pretty much the time. It was September 5th of 1962, which you guys don't even remember. How many of you weren't born in the 50s? There were, all you guys were born in the 50s? You really <laughs> done well. <laughs> okay, um, this is really interactive, and I expect responses, and I'll wait around for them, and you guys will be here forever. Okay? How many of you were born in the 50s? Yeah. Nobody was born in the 50s but me? <sighs> okay. <laughs> I was three years old on that date in September. Um, I can remember that day because it was my third birthday. And I got to go to the barn with my dad. My dad was Superman. He was so strong. And he was so big. When I was three, he was a giant. He, there wasn't anything he couldn't do. There wasn't anything that, he was, that was too hard for him. Uh, I didn't see him very much because we lived on a farm. And he worked two full-time jobs. And he farmed on top of it. We had livestock, and we had farmland. Uh, regardless, my dad was gone by the time I got up in the morning, and I was in bed before he came home at night. But on my third birthday, my mom set it up that I got to go milk the cows with my dad. Now, some people think of milking cows, you take that machine, you go, you know, and empty the bucket, Okay. That wasn't the case. My dad would milk four or five cows. And if you do this for four or five minutes, your hands start getting pretty sore. Just not even pulling on an udder. They get pretty sore. And I can't do it that long. But my dad could. And I was out, and he, it was, we walked out in this cold or cool night air, as dark as pitch out. And walked to the barn and had my dad's hand. And he called the cows in. And as they came in, he milked them. We got down to the last one. And he was playing with the cats. And when you play with a cat and a cow at the same time, the only thing you can do is squirt milk at them. And that's what he was doing. He was spraying the cats in the face. They would, they would hoard around him so he'd do this because they loved it. Um, now... I saw my dad having fun, and I wanted to be a big part of that. So I moved. When you're milking cows and you're little, 
even if you're milking cows and you're big, there's rules about where you need to be. And I moved from the spot I needed to be. The cow got spooked. The cats ran off. The cow kicked the bucket that my dad had just spent the last half hour milking these cows and fell. Um, I got slammed against the wall and I fell into the muck and milk and mire and everything else that was on the floor in that barn. And that hurt. But I didn't feel a thing because I was so afraid of the look on my dad's face. He was almost purple with anger. And all he could say was, go back to the house. Now I was struck with fear from him. But when I walked out of that barn, it could have been 10 miles. It was probably about 100 yards. But it might as well have been 10 miles because it was so dark out and I was so afraid. I wasn't afraid of my dad anymore. I was afraid of what might happen to me on the way back to the house. We lived on a farm and I saw what wild animals could do to farm animals there. I knew what the animals on the farm could do to me. They'd run you over and really trample you down pretty easy. And there were animals out there that would kill them and leave them strung, or strung around in our yard. You saw it once or twice a week. Um, I was so afraid of what might happen to me. I don't know for sure, but I probably wet my pants. I walked myself to the barn, or from the barn to the house. One little dot of light out in the area there, because my dad was pretty tight, and we didn't have a farm light. Uh, he didn't need it. And so... I walked to the house. I picked up this bag of fear and I put it on that day. That fear is the same kind of fear that I have when I step out and do something like this. Step out and do something that's not ordinary for me. Whenever I have to meet new people, I carry that same kind of fear. I have the fear of the unknown and it is petrifying. There's no way that I can really function in the middle of that unless I overcompensate for it. Now, when I walked into the house, what I found was my mother. My mom, I loved my mom very much. And she loved me. I know she loved me. When I walked into the house, what I needed was security. I needed her to put her arms around me and hug me and love me and tell me that she did. And all she could do was say, Larry, once you go get cleaned up, we'll have a slice of birthday cake at 4.30 in the morning. Um, all I needed was a hug, but my mom couldn't hug me because I was covered with all the stuff from the floor in the barn. I didn't realize that. I was three. That was hard. It was hard. But it was well compensated because my mom sliced me off a big piece of this nice green angel food cake that was delicious. I can remember the taste. I can remember the texture and the feel of that cake. That is the beginning of even more problems. Worse than fear, 
This is a coping mechanism that I could use to make myself feel better. I knew that it worked, and it did, and it does. It does comfort me. It does make me feel better. It always has. My mom would be so proud of me when I would sit down and eat double portions of everything. In fact, my mom loved me so much. I'm in the middle of five kids. I'm right in the middle of them. The oldest is adopted. The youngest is adopted. They're chosen children. The ones in the middle, me and my blood brothers, me and my direct brothers, we, they had to take us home. That's kind of a joke. It's serious, but it's kind of a joke. <laughs> and so they had to take us home. And, but that's where I was at. My older brothers, they got to spend time with my dad, not me. I got to spend time with my mom. Uh, there were too many of us, and my dad couldn't deal with it. Um, so she, my mom would do things for me. The best way I can describe it is whenever my brothers got milk, I got cream. I didn't really drink milk until I was 10 years old. I drank cream every day, every time I wanted some milk to drink. I drank cream, cereal, everything. And I grew. Man, and I could eat, and I grew, and I got bigger and bigger, and I pleased my mom. And so I continued to please my mom. You know, as I grew and got... <clears throat> older, we moved away from the farm, and we moved into town, and I had to make new friends, and I did, I did make new friends, but one year that I can remember very well, I walked into a classroom, because I was so much bigger than the other kids, the teacher looked at me, and she says, you don't belong in here, go back to the office and get your correct assignment." So I went to the office, and I told them that I went to the wrong room. So they told me the number, told me the teacher's name, and sent me back. I walked in, and she said, I thought I told you to get the correct assignment. You're too big. You do not belong in here. Um, I went back to the office. The principal brought me back down and informed this teacher, yes, he is in your class, and yes, you will find a place for him. I had a desk. My name was on it. Um, the problem was I was too big for the desk. I couldn't sit in the desk without moving it out of the way. I had to twist it sideways and then pull it back around because it's, it's a desk and a chair hooked together, but I was too large. Um, being a, a head taller than everybody else in the room, my teacher decided to make an example of me. And we did the stand up and let's see when everybody's birthday is. And they, she started having kids sit down and started with a, the oldest ages in the room. And when it came down to it, I was the last one standing. I was the biggest and the youngest in the room. Um, that was really uncomfortable. I couldn't stay in that desk. It was too hard for me to do. My mom, I told her about it. She comforted me with a sandwich or something, maybe some ice cream, something. She comforted me with that, and she confronted the teacher and said, you will find a place for him to sit. Uh, I did. 
I got the table in the back of the room sitting facing away from the chalkboard. If I wanted to learn or wanted to keep track of what was going on, I had to turn around and look over my shoulder because she wouldn't let me turn my chair around. I had to look over my shoulder to see what was going on and then try and write things down and try and do this stuff. Um, it was a struggle, and it was hard, and I felt set apart and put aside and pushed off, and all those things made me so self-conscious. That's when dyslexia shows up. I was nine or ten years old. I believe I was nine. And that's when dyslexia shows up. In the 60s, they didn't even diagnose dyslexia. You never even heard a thing about it at all. They called that a learning handicap and brought in special people to help to teach you how to read. The reading wasn't the problem. My eyes were the problem. So I was forced to, every, uh, every three days, out, every third day, or every other day out of the week, three days a week, kids from the college would come to help me. And it was a special time, and I didn't realize it, but they put me into special ed. They'd come into the room to get me, and the teacher would stop everything and say, it's time for Larry to be special again. And I'd have to walk from the back of the room through 30 kids out the door and then go and be forced to learn something that I already knew but couldn't handle or couldn't maintain because of my eyes and they were looking at it a different way than it was real. Then they'd bring me back, and I'd go through the same thing all over again. It was embarrassing and humiliating the kids in my class did not pick on me. You know why? Because I was a head taller than everybody else in the room, and if they picked on me, I was going to get them, and I would. <laughs> I had a violent streak in me then because I was angry about this. By the time I got out of that class, I was bigger than the teacher, and she had learned that I had some anger issues, and um, she did stop picking at me as much before I got out of there. But the damage was done. I decided when I was in the third grade that you're not going to teach me anything. You can't make me learn a thing. I don't like education. I don't like educators. I don't like the word ed. I don't like the name. And I decided that I'm going to be angry and mad about that, and you're never going to teach me anything. And heading into the life that you have to go through third grade through 12th grade in school to do the things they want you to do there, that's hard to do. But I decided this is how I'm going to be. This is where I'm going. Now, I had some buddies that, um, you know, everybody's got buddies in school. And I had some pretty close friends. They were my friends that uh, knew a lot about me, and uh, they knew what got my goat. They knew what pick, you know. They knew how to pick on me, but I was pretty oblivious to a lot of that stuff. I would, uh, I remember a day out on the playground talking with my buddy Billy about why didn't you pick me, Billy? And he says, well, Larry, I didn't see you. 
said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm bigger than everybody else here, and I'm the guy standing in the back yelling, pick me, pick me, pick me, and you pick everybody else but me. Why? I said, well, we, we, were, we were playing kickball in our, or whatever game we were playing, and uh, we wanted to win. Well, Billy, I wanted to win too. Why didn't, you, why didn't you pick me? We played tug of war. You picked me first. King on the mountain, who's the first one on that team? But when it comes to a race or to running, you don't ever pick me. And he says, well, Larry, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to do that to you. I said, no, you did it on purpose. Why? He says, you don't want to know. And I said, yes, I do. And I probably said, yes, I do. Um, he looked at me and said, Larry, you do that. That thought hurts. Coming from a friend, it hurts even more. But I took on that bag, too, that I'm fat. And that became a lot of who I was. It was just fat. I wasn't husky anymore because husky used to be I don't know if they still sell clothes that are called husky. Name them fat. Because that's, that's what makes you feel like. i got to wear husky clothes because I'm fat. Um, <laughs> I had that come down on me. And when those things would happen, I would automatically go to my comforter. And you know what she'd do? She'd feed me. Again. And make me feel a little better. And everything would be okay for a little while until I remembered I was fat. Until I remembered that there was parts about me that I couldn't do anything about, that I couldn't change. There's nothing I could... I didn't have it in my power to change who I was then. I didn't think so anyway. I grew up carrying this stuff around. Having the fear of other people made me confront people just to make myself feel like I was protected, like I could save myself or I could protect myself somehow. So I would put myself in situations, hang out with older teenagers that really did not have my best interests at heart. Uh, I was involved in drugs and sex and violence before I got into junior high school. I was hanging out with people that were coming back from the Vietnam War that were twisted in their minds so far that they were very abusive people. They let me hang out because I had teenage friends. I knew young girls. And they wanted them around. And I wanted to get high. To hide from the stuff. To hide from all this stuff. <clears throat> I got damaged from my friends because they got damaged at home. I didn't know it then, but I know it now. Most of the guys that I called my best friends were being abused somehow at home. They were being raped by a brother or a father or a mother. They were being abused and beaten. They were being treated terribly at home. My life was tough, but it wasn't anything like that. But those are the guys I choose to hang with because I fit. 
There were the outcasts. There were the guys that I, I knew I could get along with. So I spent a lot of time with abused people, and I learned how to abuse other people. And I continued on doing that because it made me feel better and I wasn't so fat and I didn't have to make excuses for myself. All I had to do was make these other people happy or make them scared, one of the two. And it made my life easier and better. Now, all that damage that, I inf- that was inflicted on me has a pretty heavy load. It's nothing compared to a load that I carry for the damage that I've inflicted on others. I've put people at risk. I have done multiple, multiple things that uh, really I could have gone to prison for more than once. I didn't because I figured I was lucky. I found out here (laughs) recently that I probably should have went to prison because God shows up there all the time. He does. He shows up in jail constantly. He must have been one heck of a criminal because he's always in jail. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, the damage that that I inflicted on others was horrible. I remember a young lady that I really was attracted to. Now, I'd already been involved in all kinds of sexual activity. And this young lady, I told myself and I tried to tell her that I wanted to spend some time with her. And I asked her if she'd go out with me. And she says, why would, why, what do you want to do? That's not what I heard. What I heard was, why would I spend any time with you? And it just crushed me because I'm fat. She don't want nothing to do with me because I'm fat. Well, She was only asking a question, but I went home to my comforter and told her, I've been destroyed, I've been crushed. And my comforter says, well, here, have a slice of pizza. And I realized my comforter wasn't my comforter. She's my enemy. She's making me fat. She's always pushing food down my throat. And when when I realized that was a perfect time to rebel, Against my parents, everybody ought to do that every now and then. If you've got kids that are small, wait. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. My kids are all old. They're still rebelling. Right, Bob? Yes. So, okay, yeah, he's still rebelling. Um, they're all. But it was a perfect time. Now, how could I hurt my mom without really hurting my mom? I couldn't scare her. My mom was six foot one and weighed 400 pounds. Could kick my butt. Easy. Uh, But what hurt her, what made her proud of me, was the food and what I'd consume. What hurt her was when I wouldn't. So I stopped. I stopped eating. And I stopped doing the things that my mom wanted to do. I stopped going there for comfort, and I took some solace, and I have control over this. And I started to lose weight, and I pushed myself to a point of anorexia through bulimia. When I got diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, my mom carried me into the doctor's office in one hand by my belt because I'd passed out on the way out of the car. I couldn't stand up. I was so weak. 
And my mom carried me into the doctor and sat me down in front of him and says, what's wrong with this boy? Fix him. And he says, well, it looks like he's got anorexia nervosa. And I'm going to say this anyway. Karen Carpenter was still alive. Does anybody know who Karen Carpenter was? You know who Karen Carpenter was. <laughs> okay. And you know. Okay. Um, she was the first famous person that died from anorexia. And really, that wasn't until 1980, I believe. This was in 76. And nobody had a clue what it was, but I asked the doctor, what is that? And he says, if you don't eat, you're going to die. Uh, fear showed up, thank you, Lord. And I didn't want to die. So I started to eat and tried to get myself healthy. Uh, I had dropped out of school during all that rebellion and all that stuff and all the hatred that I had for teachers. And I went back to school. The young lady that I talked to about earlier, that well, just wanted to spend some time with, she asked me one day, I think what she was asking me was come and help build a float because I was a carpenter and I could do those things. But what I heard her say was, would you come over and spend some time with me? And I turned to her and I said, why would I spend any time with you? And she was crushed. The first time we had that conversation, it was her and I talking one-on-one. That second time, she was with all her friends. This is a very popular girl. She was surrounded by all her friends, and she just got rejected by the reject in the school. And she was crushed. And I was on top. Just the thought of it destroys me now. Uh, I did get a chance to meet with her not too long ago. It's been a few years ago now. And I apologized. And she let me know how much she wasn't going to accept my apology. Homecoming queen, cheerleader, all of the great stuff. And then to have somebody like me crush her that way. Uh, those kind of bags I carry, and those, that's just one example. There's so many more. I grew up, got out of school, got married, took on a family. Well, let's see. <laughs> Through all this stuff, I took on a bunch of addiction. Did as much uh, drugs as I could get my hands on. Drank drugs, uh, sex, violence, all that stuff. <sighs> Grew up, got married. Kept on doing the drugs, dealing drugs, selling drugs, adding to my list of depravity. Kept putting more bags on. <sighs> I had to stay. I pull my pants up around. There we go. I got sentenced to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I sobered up. I got off the drugs, and I started trying to do things that were right. I started trying to do the things that I needed to do. Uh, tried to get my family back together. Tried to do all those things. 
I had to stay busy. I had to stay working. I haven't had a job my whole life. And now I have my own business, and I'm sober, and I have all these things going on, and God's blessing me over and over again, and I just don't know it. 1988, I accepted salvation. And some of you guys know Dave Zock. I was in his house during a Wednesday night service, and I was such a drunk and a bouncer and a loser and a drug addict and an abuser. And I accepted salvation, but I didn't change anything. Um, No, don't help. They're my bags. I can get them. I'm a big boy, maybe. You were going to, weren't you? Yeah, I caught you. So, <clears throat> uh, these are, I can manage this stuff. I can do all these things. Uh, I can make all this work. I know I can. Uh, it's just a matter of a little adjustment. That's what Sobering Up did. It also blessed me with relationship with my kids, with relationships uh, with my new wife. And I prayed that I'd get my children back, that I'd have my kids in my life again. Because I lost it because of my own stupidity, my own depravity. And God blessed me with relationship with my kids and relationship with four more kids and a beautiful wife that's here today. Uh, That's my family. And they got a bit bigger of a bag because all of their stuff is in there too. Um, I can manage my family too. I can handle them. I can handle the disrespect. I can handle the dishonor. I can handle the abuse. I can handle the addiction. I can handle the violence. All the things that my kids are involved in. All the things that I was involved in that melted down to them. That's all in here. There's more people in here too. My ex-wife and her boyfriend, they're both in here. Not literally. (laughs) No. Not literally. But they are. They're part of my life. They're part of my family. They're part of what makes me tick. My parents, my brothers, my grandparents, the memories that I have of the important people in my life are all in here, and all their baggage is in there too. And it's a heavy burden to bear. I was blessed with people around me, good Christian men around me, that were saying, Larry, can you see what's going on in your life? You don't have to live like that. And I'm thinking, what do you mean I don't have to live like that? I need all this stuff. If I didn't have all this stuff, this stuff would take over. The fear of my life would have control over me and I'd be froze. I need all these things. And they said, no, you need Jesus. 
You need Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, uh-oh, we lost my deal. I know. Yeah, it's coming. Are you helping me? Yes. Okay, we're going to call him a tech guy, even though he is bit codependent. Shh. <laughs> um, we'll call him a tech guy instead. Uh, anyway, I needed Jesus Christ, but when I heard that my children needed Jesus Christ, that made a difference. And my heart was moved to start going to church and start doing a life that would honor Christ. And then I picked up another bag. This is my church family. This is my Bible. This is the this is the stuff that I do for the Lord. These are all the tasks that I have to accomplish to make God love me, to be part of what he wants me to be in his family. I got to do all this stuff. I got to read my Bible. It's in there. The Bible's heavy. You might have a book this size and you might have a book this size. They're all heavy because the reading in there is heavy. And it's almost impossible to do. But I'm going to do it because my children need it. I've been blessed. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Um, do you agree I have an abundant life? These are my bags. These are my bags. This is the stuff that makes me up. All but one. Oh, boy. All but this one. This one. This one I carry with me everywhere I go. This is one of my secret life. This is a life that I don't let people see. This is the stuff I look at on the computer that I'm not supposed to be looking at. These are relationships that I have that aren't honoring to God or my wife. These are the things that happen. These are the things that I go after. This is a, the prescription medication because I don't do drugs. I don't drink. These are the thoughts in my head, the things that I can't let anybody see. These are the things that keep me away from my God and away from serving my God. The load that's in here is heavier than all of this. And Christ keeps telling me that he loves me and I don't have to carry this much burden. How do I not? How do I stop? I cry out. And I say, Jesus, if you really are who you say you are and you say you love me so much, you'll take this stuff off my back and out of my hands and you'll love me. Please, Lord, save me from myself. And you know what his answer is every time? It's yes. 
guys were noticing when I walked away I laid all that stuff down I laid that down at the foot of Jesus Christ the foot of the cross I laid it down in front of a dead man that was hanging there dying and bleeding for me and he saved me from all that stuff but I walked away still carrying the very first thing that controlled my life the very first thing that owned me besides my Lord I have to make a decision every day to lay that part of me down. And I'm doing that right now by laying this bag of fear down. It's a scary place not to have all that stuff holding me back and holding me down. But it's a much more beneficial place than carrying it and trying to maintain that stuff. If you found anything to write down while these girls play the rest of the song or play through the song, please prayerfully bring those, tag, those baggage tags up and lay them down. Put them in the suitcase that the Lord might take them away and remove them from you. Do your very best in your heart to put those things down today and do it now.
I want to thank you all for being so courageous, for being so brave to take the pains of your life and for laying them down, to take the secrets that are keeping you from doing and being the person, doing for the Lord the things that you want to do. The things that you want to do for the Lord, He's placed those there. The desires of your heart, He will change those to conform to the desires of His heart. If you're in Jesus Christ today, that's true for you. So the things you want to do for the Lord, the dreams that you have, that you dream that you might someday be able to do, work towards those things. God is gracious and God is good. And He has designed you for things much, much better than a pile of luggage, than a pile of baggage, than a pile of stuff, a pile of pain. Please, don't walk out of here knowing that you left something inside you that you should have laid down. We're running way past our time, and I'm sorry for that. But I'm going to close this in a prayer. I want to pray for you guys. If you still have things that you want to lay down, there's time to do that. Don't worry about somebody's going to read these or anything. If you signed it, they'll disappear. If not, they're going to disappear too. God knows what you're putting down. If you didn't have it in yourself to bring something forward, but you have that thing, ask Him. The tag is just a symbol. The tag is just a symbol. The action is out of your heart. Let God move your heart. He wants a home there. He wants a place there. Lord, I pray that today the name of Jesus Christ is lifted up in this place. That the name of Jesus Christ is lifted up in our hearts. That our Savior, our Healer, our Redeemer, dear Father, would be honored and glorified from the thoughts and actions that we've done today. Lord, that we would make today and every day the same. Lord, in honor and service of you, Father, you are so gracious and so merciful, and you've allowed us, your most precious, to save the most worthless. Father, you know who I am, and you love me anyway. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Father, I just ask that you guard and protect this church family and bring them back together as soon as possible that they may continue to serve and honor you together as they go out and serve you and honor you separately today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You are listening to an audio message from The Well, a church in Hastings, Nebraska that seeks to be relevant, relational, and real. For more information, visit www.thewellhastings.com.